Um, I do want to say, as I lead, before we read the scripture together, uh, this morning's topic is very ordinary, and so you're supposed to embody your topic, so I'm going to probably be very ordinary this morning, if that's okay. So I want you to stand with me. I want to read from the book of Hebrews. <clears throat> We're going to be reading from part of chapter 1 and part of chapter 2. So would you join me in reading the word? In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its great just punishment, how shall we escape if we so ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So I'm going to come back to this text to try to help answer this question. But here's the question that I've asked before. I think over the years is a question I've, I've been asked quite a lot by people. And it's this. Why do we not see great miracles anymore? Why do we not see great miracles? I mean, when you look at the Bible, does not, when you look back, does it not just seem like it's just chocked full of all these amazing miracles? And then we look back and we're like, what, like what's, what's wrong now? What's wrong with us? Before answering that question, I just want to very briefly, Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology has identified five purposes of miracles in Scripture. One, just to help those in need because he cares about people. Two, to remove hindrances to people's ministries. Uh, three, to bring glory to God by demonstrating his sovereign power over creation. So his fame increases. Uh, this one is really related to the Gospels, to bear witness to the presence of the kingdom, the unbreaking of the kingdom in Jesus. And then the last one he says is to authenticate the message of the gospel, to authenticate the message of the gospel. And that last one, that idea that miracles serve a larger purpose in God's redemptive plan, that they testify to the authenticity of his messengers, the ones who bring his revelation to humanity, that that's a really significant. It's not the only purpose, but it's a significant um, and we see this authenticating work of the miracles throughout the Bible. And I just want to show you a few places. So in Deuteronomy 4, this is what Moses says to the Old Testament, the Israelites. He says, no other God has taken for himself one nation out of another. But the Lord your God did this for you in Egypt right before your own eyes. He did it with tests, signs, miracles, war, great sights, by his great power and strength. He showed you these things so that you would know, so that you would know that the Lord is God and there's no other God beside him. So he did all these great miracles with those, that generation as a way to authenticate the reality of who he was. In the New Testament, they served to authenticate who Jesus claimed to be. Um, we are told that when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to him, are you the one? Are you the Messiah, the Savior we're expecting? Are you the one who's to come or should we expect someone else? 
And Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. Who I claim to be is authenticated by the miracles that I do. Okay? So they serve that authenticating purpose. And I want to tell you, his miracles just had this amazing scope to him because his claim was not just to be the Messiah, but was to be, he was the creator in human flesh. And he did things only the creator could do. Um, physical healings of the blind and the deaf, um, of people with fevers, which we've had a number of those lately. Um, you know, paralysis, leprosy, just multiple things. He's casting evil spirits out of people, something only God can do. He um, raises the dead against something only the creator and generator of life can do. He even exercises power over nature and creation in a way nobody ever before was able to do, multiplying food, calming storms, walking on water. So in all of that, he is, through all of those things are authenticating what he is claiming about himself with his words. That's why, so then in Acts chapter 2, 22, Peter said this. He said, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God. He was accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. So all of those wonders and signs serve that purpose of authenticating what he claimed about himself. And they not only authenticated who he claimed to be, But after Jesus died and was buried and rose again and ascended, the apostles were proclaiming the risen Jesus to people, uh, taking that to the nations, and the miracles authenticated their message, and that's in Acts 14.3. This is written about Paul and Barnabas who were in Iconium, and it says, Paul and Barnabas spent spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of his grace, he confirmed that message by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. I could show you other scripture that talk about this, this authenticating nature of miracles, that that miracles can serve this larger purpose, that when God gives revelation, especially, I'm going to show you in a minute, in big chunks, when he gives revelation, he will authenticate that revelation that is from him through these big signs and, and wonders. So they authenticate the message and the messenger. <clears throat> now, the reason I'm, I brought that up is because this text talks about that this morning. In Hebrews 1 and 2, it says that in the past, God spoke, right? He gave revelation to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these final days, he has spoken to us by his son. And the son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. And God confirmed he authenticated the message by giving signs, wonders, and various miracles. He authenticated who Jesus was and what he said through these signs and miracles. So this brings me back to that big question, why do we not see great miracles anymore? Why do we not see them? Things like the parting of the Red Sea kind. Why do we not see that kind of stuff? And what I want to do is I want to show you with this understanding of miracles authenticating revelation, I want to show you, I want to give you a a more clear picture, I think, of what's going on in the Bible. Um, And so if I were to show you um, this diagram of when a lot of the miracles happening, that what you start to realize when you look at it closely is that it's not as chocked full of them as we think they are. We kind of think just everybody was having grand miracles all throughout the Old Testament and into the New. But the truth is, is that the miracles, especially the really big ones, primarily occurred in three chunks in, here, in, in history, in three eras. 
during the time of Moses when he's getting a big chunk of revelation, the law for the Jews, the law and the prophets are the big chunks of revelation. So big miracles, the big ones are really happening with Moses. And then with Elijah and Elisha, when, when big chunks of revelation are coming, the prophets, so the law and the prophets for the Old Testament revelation, accompanied by great miracles. And then when Jesus shows up on the scene, the son, the ultimate revelation of God, God appearing in flesh, that you see suddenly, again, these great chunks of very, these very big, dramatic, spectacular miracles. There's exceptions. There are some miracles that happen between them, but not, none of the really super big ones that we tend to think about. And I want to show you something else about this. When you look at this kind of this history diagram as I've tried to do it, um, that each major era, those three eras accompanied by major miracles, those only, yeah, so they're for the purpose of authentication, and they only lasted about 70 years. So Moses, it was about 1500 BC to 1430, somewhere around there. For 70 years, there was a sudden chunk of huge miracles. And then not again until Elijah and Elisha, and that was about 870 to 800. BC. So again, about a 70-year chunk. And then suddenly Jesus shows up on the same scene, claiming him as Messiah and Creator. And from about 30 AD to 100, with him and the early church, you have a big chunk of miracles suddenly occurring. And then even after 100 AD, they kind of start to die out. They're not happening. They're not recorded to the same intensity. And so actually, those chunks are a lot smaller than what we imagine, at least me, in my mind, where I thought it was like all the time in the Old Testament. And then if you look at those times between, the times, the before and the, the between and the after of these miracles, that those periods of history when really not as much is happening are hundreds of years, hundreds of years. In fact, if I told you Abraham lived 2100 BC, Jesus comes, if he comes in zero, but 5 AD, 2100 years of Old Testament history between Abraham and Jesus. And of that 2100 years, only 150 are major miracles happening a vast minority of that time. And so the reality is, I think that I didn't understand this for a long time, the reality is, is that the majority of believers in the Old and New Testament, the majority of them, never saw a huge dramatic miracle happen. The vast majority. Just like you and I. We've heard of them, we've been told of them, we've read of them, but we've never witnessed them. That really, I'm no different than the majority of believers who live throughout history. Perhaps that's why Jesus said to Thomas in John 20, 29, blessed are those who never see such miracles and belief because it's, the reality is, is that's most of us. So again, for me to kind of summarize this section, that among other things, miracles serve a larger purpose in God's redemptive plan. It is to authenticate his message and his messengers so people will receive it. That miracles authenticate his message and messengers. And I think even today, this reality, I am convinced, holds true. Um, let me ask that question about miracles in a little different way. Sometimes I've thought, or probably you've heard, man, I hear over in that part of the world where missions is new, new frontier, man, there's some big miracles happening there. Why don't I see them in Emporia, Kansas? If they're happening over in Ghana or Nigeria or in Mongolia, why are we not seeing those things? And I think it's actually closely related to this whole, the same concept. Um, a few years ago, Brian Hogan came and spoke here. You guys remember Brian? He was a missionary in Mongolia and was in the first group that got in there. I mean, that, talk about the frontier, the cutting edge of where God's going, taking his good news to the nations. And he talked about they saw some really pretty amazing miracles. 
But that was really important in that culture. Brian even said from this stage, he said, do you know why we see those there, but maybe you don't see them here? Is because that's a place where there is a desperate need for the authentication of the messengers and the message. Because without that, they, they see spiritual powers happening around them all the time, and they desperately need that authentication so that they can accept the message. That's really especially true in power cultures. Um, I'm, I'm probably going to create more questions than I, than I help with. There's three cultures in the world, cultural groups. There's what's called guilt cultures. In America, we're guilt, we're guilt culture people. There's what are called shame cultures, which primarily are East Asian cultures, Middle East. And then there's what's called power cultures. And in power cultures, there's a lot of demonic activity, a lot of worship of spirits. And there's a lot of, demon, they see power, the powers of those spirits demonstrated on a daily basis. And so when the message of Jesus comes into a place like that, they desperately need to see power encounters. Does that make sense? They need to see the, a demonstration of a greater power to authenticate the message that they're receiving. And don't get Brian wrong what he said that day, that miracles only occur on the frontiers because God can do things, even today if he desires, right? Don't, don't get me wrong that he doesn't still do miracles, um, I've experienced a physical miracle in my own life, something, and it wasn't just a thing I kind of thought was a miracle. There is, there was, I could show you medical evidence to back up this amazing thing that God did in, in bringing healing to me. But here's what I want you to know, that throughout the history of his people, the big spectacular miracles have tended to clump in very small periods of history where there's the giving of a lot of revelations. Does that make sense? That, that idea to me is so, so significant. That's so significant because God was authenticating the message. Okay, I don't ever just want to be all about theory. So to me, that's important and understanding that's helpful. But I really want to make this practical. But first, I'm going to have a drink. Is that okay? <laughs> I want to get really practical. And here's what I learned from this. The way God's miracles really happen, not the way we imagine, but I think the way they really happen is this, that God's preferred way is to not work in the, in the big and in the spectacular, but God's preferred way of working is in the small, it's in the ordinary, it's in the everyday, and it's in the mundane. Because the majority of history has not had the big miracles, so his preferred way is not in the big and spectacular, but it's in the ordinary and the mundane. But we as fallen humans, the thing we want and the thing we prefer is we want the spectacular. Is that not true? We want the big deal. That's what we want. I mean, you see it all in Jesus' ministry. He feeds the 5,000, a really big miracle that 20,000 people saw, this really big thing. And then he goes somewhere else up on the sea, and the whole group follows him, and he says to them basically, you're following me because you, you're, you want the spectacular, and you want me to do that again, but I'm not going to do it again. Have a seat, and I'm just going to teach you. And by the end of John chapter 6, a majority of those people had left. They had blown him off because they were uninterested in the ordinary, mundane things. Not that he said anything ordinary. Don't get me wrong. What they wanted was the big and spectacular. And so they blew him off and left him. Or in the, the story of the rich man and Lazarus, we're told that the rich man, when he's an attorney without Christ and he's talking to Abraham and he says, I have brothers back on earth who are lost. Would you raise somebody from the dead that would convince them to believe in God and to follow him? And Abraham says, if they haven't just simply taken the revelation God has given them and they don't believe that, a miracle won't change anything with them. So no, because we want the big and spectacular. And it wasn't just the people in Jesus' day. I think it's, it's us, it's me. I think many of us, we try to build our faith or long to build our faith on the big, 
the spectacular, the experiential, the dramatic, the extraordinary, the sensational, the exciting. There's this thing in us that makes us want to build our faith and that kind of stuff. What we really want in our spiritual life is I want the mountaintop experience. That's what I want. I want that silver bullet thing that's just going to finally fix me and solve all my spiritual problems, right? I want the magic spiritual pill, the big thing, but if I would just get that, everything would be good again. I wouldn't have the struggles that I do. We just keep looking for that one experience, that one conference, that one weekend that will just powerfully transform me for the rest of my life. We keep looking for what John Ortberg calls rainbow days. You know that day when that first rainbow showed up for Noah? That was a really, really big day. God intersected into his life, and that was a big day. And John Orbeck says, what we want all the time are those big days or the rainbow days. Um, I've been thinking this week a lot, you know, why is this addiction to the spectacular? And number one, I think it is fallen human nature. I think you see it all in the Bible. People want the big. That's what they want. But I think us in the West, in the U.S., I think we struggle with this more than most people globally for a couple of reasons, for a few, because, I mean, I'm telling you, in our world in America, isn't everything big? You know, when you go to a concert, when you do anything, it's always big, right? I think we're addicted to the big here. Um, we're just constantly stimulated, especially younger generations. I didn't grow up with an iPhone or an iP- iPad. I mean, you had TV sometimes, movies, but there's this constant stimulation going on. And I think in our culture, we need to be stimulated, and stimulation requires things that are flashy and big, right? <coughs> And we're a culture that wants the quick fix. We want, you know, instant gratification. We are a microwavable society. We want things to happen and happen now. And, and it's big and it takes care of everything. There's just so much in our culture, I feel like. And our culture is, we are not good at the daily grind, just the daily grind of dailiness. Because that takes time and hard work and there's not all the excitement. But I want to tell you, that's where I think God is primarily. That's where God is. Somebody, I can't find who said this, but he said, we live in a day when image rates higher than character, when style counts more than real accomplishment. We're impressed with outward appearances. We're easily distracted from unspectacular disciplines that lead to excellence. Life is skimmed from the surface. The depths remain largely unexplored. I think there's so much in our culture that's true of that, and that's why we're addicted to the spectacular. So, Can God do something big in my life? Can he give me a rainbow day? Well, of course he can, right? He is sovereign. But is is this God's preferred way to act? And is the big and spectacular his preferred way to grow us up? And I would say no. I would say no. Elijah, after one of those big spectacular miracles, you know, the fire down on the altar and all that, went into an utter depression and ended up leaving Israel, headed south, and then God, he encountered God and got an angel, and angel's like, go to, go to the mount where I met Moses because I want to meet you there. And let's have a conversation. And so he finally gets down there. He gets in a cleft of a rock or a little cave, and he's told God's going to show up and talk to him, right? And so the first thing that happens is this huge windstorm sweeps over the mountain. It says it like knocks rocks over. It's such a strong windstorm. And, but we're told God wasn't in the wind. And then a huge earthquake happens, and again, rocks are falling and crumbling, and he's waiting with bated breath. God's got to be in this big one, right? But God wasn't in the earthquake. And then the great fire comes over the mountain, but God wasn't in the fire. And then in the the words of the King James, God suddenly spoke to him in a still, small voice. I mean, in Hebrew, it's like, shh, like, the the words even just shh, like, 
a quiet whisper. This is how God speaks to him. In the small, ordinary, the mundane is how God ends up meeting him. Not in a shout, but in a whisper. And here's what I've learned from all of this in my walk. And as I've just thought about this topic, um, that the vast majority of our growth in the image of Jesus and to his likeness, it will come in simply walking with Jesus. I think I've got some of this up here somewhere. Uh, sorry. The vast majority of our growth in the image and likeness of God will come in simply walking with Jesus in the ordinariness of life, in the everyday, in the mundane, within the normal rhythms and routines of our daily, regular, real lives. That is the place he most wants to grow us and will grow us is in those places. I mean, how do you know that, Garen? I mean, one, to me, this whole the miracle thing to me speaks to that issue. But to me, the, one of the most profound statements on the spiritual life in the scriptures in 1 Corinthians 10.31 where Paul says this, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Nothing big and spectacular there, right? Nothing at all. Why didn't he say, hey, whenever you have dreams and visions of me or if you preach before thousands or millions, do it for the glory of God. But he says, if you're eating and drinking, I mean, the most mundane, ordinary things in life, glorify God in that because he's there and he wants to meet you in that place. Um. Perhaps the reason God says that is because he knows that it's in the ordinary things like just eating and drinking that are the places that ultimately is going to most impact my walk with him in reality. Eugene Peterson, that great saint, said this about this text. I just love this. Christian practice in matters of spiritual formation goes badly astray when it attempts to construct or organize ways of spirituality apart from the ordinariness of life. There is nothing more ordinary than a meal. Every time we pick up a knife and fork, every time we say, pass the salt, please, every time we take a second helping of cauliflower, or I would say broccoli, I can't stand cauliflower. Unless you put enough cheese on it, I don't know what's in it, okay? (laughs) Every time we say, pass the salt, please, we take that second helping, we're in a setting that's congenial to being formed in the image of God. Is that not powerful? I love that. Maybe the simple eating of a meal is one of the most formative things that will happen in your spiritual life. Morning, breakfast, lunch, supper, breakfast, lunch, supper. When you just sit with your family around a table where you sit with friends and you hold hands and you pray, Lord, for the food that's before us. For the family beside us. For the love among us. For your presence with us. Thank you. And then you eat, and you enjoy, and you talk about your day. And you, you talk, the thing, as you talk about the ups and downs, you apply scripture and God to it. Like, where's God at work in all of that? And you enjoy the food, and you enjoy each other. That maybe that's one of the most spiritual things you can do, rather than the big miracle, right? But man, we long so much for the dramatic, I'm just... Do you know how often I preach to myself up here? We long for the dramatic. And I think like Jacob, how many times do we end up saying what Jacob said in Genesis 26? Oh, the Lord was there and I didn't even know it. I didn't even recognize him because we want the big so much that we can't see him in the small. Boy, a lot of people have spoken this reality. I had a boatload of quotes. It's hard for me to 
skim these things down, but I want to share a few things of people who speak, some of these great saints to this. James K.A. Smith, I love this. The everyday is the arena of sanctification. It's how hard to chart in. I guess that's how you say his French name. I'm not sure. Do not forget that the value and interest of life is not so much to do conspicuous things as to do the ordinary things with the perception of their enormous value. Mount B. Babcock, the workshop of characters, everyday life, the uneventful and commonplace hour, that's where the battle is won or lost. Do you know that? That's where the battle is won or lost. That's why C.S. Lewis in the screw tape letters, when he's, have, he's like, what would Satan say to a spirit who's trying to keep a Christian down and not growing and all of that? And here's his advice to him. My dear Wormwood, keep his mind off the most elementary duties by directing it to the most advanced and the spiritual ones, the big things. Keep his mind off of the ordinary, the everyday, the mundane, the simple thing, and just get him looking for the big things all the time. And if you do that, you'll keep him down. Isn't that powerful? Any golf fans here or people who try? I try like every two years. That's why I'm horrible. Um, even golf knows, people in golf know this because in golf, that, that would be me. Um, here's the saying in golf, drive for show, but putt for dough. Okay, the drive, the big spectacular, you know, the, I don't know, 300 yards, maybe that's a Tiger Woods kind of thing, you know, we go like, whoa, look at that, but the reality, the game isn't won on the drive, it's not won on the irons, it's won on the green and the small things. That's why when I usually play, I have two drives, usually my first one is a slice off into the trees, so forget that one, and then I'll hit it again, a little less umph, and it'll go kind of in the fairway, and then I'll take me, depends on the distance, one or two irons, my irons is probably the best part of my game, and then you get kind of close, and then it's pulling out the short game, so two drives to get there, two irons, and then about 20 putts to get it in the hole, that's just the reality, how is putting the hardest part of golf, I don't get it, um, but it is, or not putting, but chipping, oh my goodness, I'll chip the ball like five times over, you know, whoom, 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 over the green before finally I'm just like, you kick it up on, on the green, you know, I don't, okay, but where golf is won is in the small things. I have kind of a long quote from Tish, Tish Harrison Warren, and at the end I'm going to recommend her book if you're a reader, but here's what she says, Annie Dilliard famously writes, how we spend our days is of course how we spend our lives, every new day. I'm living this life, the life right in front of me. This one where marriage is struggle. This one where we aren't living as we thought we might or as we hoped we would. This one where we are weary, where we want to make a difference but aren't sure where to start. Where we have to get dinner on the table or the kids' teeth brushed. Where we have back pain and boring weeks where our lives look small. Where we doubt, where we wrestle with meaninglessness, where we worry about those we love, where we struggle to meet our neighbors and love those closest to us, where we grieve, where we wait. Anybody have a life like that besides me? And here's what she says, on this particular day, Jesus knows me and declares me his own. On this day, he's redeeming the world, advancing his kingdom, calling us to repent and grow, teaching his church to worship, drawing us near to us, making a people all his own. If I'm to spend my whole life being transformed by the good news of Jesus, I must learn how I spend this ordinary day in Christ is how I'll spend my Christian life. How good is that? How good is that? And my favorite, the one I saved it for last, Thomas Carlyle said this, when the oak is felled, the whole forest echoes with its fall. 
but a hundred acorns are sown in silence by an unnoticed breeze. That most of what God is doing in the world is not in the big and the spectacular. It is in the ordinary, the simple, the everyday, plainly, frankly, in the mundane. That that's the majority of the work where he wants to have in my life. And I think maybe God knows some things we don't, because I want the dramatic, right? Perhaps God prefers to work in the ordinary because he knows that a constant diet of the big and the spectacular would be counterproductive to our growth, actually might hinder our spiritual growth. Maybe God knows that a constant diet of the big would actually undermine our ability to even see him in the big. Maybe God knows that, this counterintuitive thing. Psychologists speak of something called, or counselors, habituation. And habituation is this idea, that the first time you encounter something or something big happens, that at first you take notice, it's there, it's obvious, you see it for several days, but if it sits around you long enough or you see enough of the same thing, you get to where you don't even notice it anymore. Um, you see habituation if you've ever moved and you pack all your boxes, right? And you move to, to the new house. It's, it's easy to pack boxes because you've got to get out of the house by a certain date. But then you get there and you see all the boxes and so you unpack a lot of them because you hate seeing them. But then uh, you kind of get tired of it and then some just sit there in corners. And then it gets to where you don't even notice, right? You don't even see the unpacked boxes for a year or two. And then you're like, whoa, look, there's some unpacked boxes. It's that idea of habituation, of habituation, And then maybe God knows that if he just showed up constantly in big, spectacular ways, we would become so habituated. We wouldn't even notice when he shows up anymore. And I want to tell you, that's what happened to Israel in the desert. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul talks about the fact that the miracles that happened to Israel, they got to where they didn't even see them anymore. They became habituated to it. So why doesn't God primarily work in the miraculous and the spectacular? Maybe it's because not only does he know that we'll lose the ability to even see him in the big, but also maybe so we'll learn to see him in the ordinary instead of the extraordinary. That maybe God knows an unhealthy dependence upon the big would actually undermine our ability to be attentive to, to see, to experience him in the ordinary. That would totally undermine our ability to see him in ordinary things. That if he constantly, if he submitted to our demand for the spectacular and the big, that it would be like the mother who just inadvertently is always shouting at her children all the time, and it gets to where, if you've been a parent, you know this, when you talk loud all the time, they don't even hear you anymore, right? They don't hear you anymore. That if you want your children's attention, all you have to do is you just tone it down a little bit, and you just whisper, you say something quiet, and suddenly you have their attention, and they're paying attention, because the loud overrules the small and the quiet. Um, For those of you that are parents... Have you ever been in your house and like you put the kids, you send them all upstairs to bed and you're downstairs and then you just lean over and you whisper something to your wife and then you hear from upstairs, what'd you say, what'd you say? (laughs) Ever had that happen, right? Because they're attuned to the quiet and the small. Um, Just ran into Debbie Meggs Friday at the Christian school. I was going to see Pat and this came up. I don't remember how it came up, but she just said, you know, teachers know that if you want your children's attention, you stop. You talk quiet, that if you talk loud all the time, they don't hear. So maybe God, maybe he wants to give us the gift of the ability to hear him in the quiet and in the ordinary. And maybe he knows that our, that our love for him will actually grow more in learning to hear and see him in the ordinary than in the big things. 
If you're married, you know that, right, as a spouse. Before you get married, you think, oh, it's the big dates and the big vacation. That's what makes a marriage, right? It's not. I mean, those are important. Where marriage is made is just in the daily fidelity and hanging in there and washing dishes for them or taking out the trash or all these little things. That's what builds the tensile strength of a marriage. It's not the big things. And God knows that, that the thing that's really going to build your walk with God is going to be in those small things. So here's why I share this this morning. Um, because a lot of my Christ- frustration in my Christian life for a long time came out of me not understanding this. I became a believer in Hayes, spent the first five years in a church that was very foundational to me, formational. That, that place was a family, so important. But that church, though, they had a spiritual background of emphasizing the big all the time. Constant. It was always the big revival, the next big revival. You're just living for the big revival, the next big event, the next big weekend thing, whatever it is, the big, the big experience. Do you remember I told you I used to go down like for every invitation? I mean, man, I'm telling you, I was always living for the next big thing. And what I started to find is the big things really didn't change my life the way I thought they would. And I actually got to where I was kind of burnt out on the big things because nobody told me that the best place to know and meet God is in the ordinary. Nobody told me that for a long time. And so I just lived this life living for that silver bullet or the next big thing. What I've come to learn over time is that the Christian life is just so, can I say stinking? It's so stinking daily. It's just daily. I just read this week, Chuck Swindoll said the greatest piece of advice he got from his mentor when he was a new believer is he's like, How do I want to live this powerful spiritual life. What do I do? And he said, realize this one thing, that walking with Jesus is just so daily. It's just so daily. That's just the reality of it. That that growing in my walk with Jesus is just a lot more of following him daily and it's three steps forward and it's two steps back, right? And that trying to follow Jesus as my, my apprentice and to be his follower, that I, I'm moving towards him most of the time, but there's a lot of stumbling, a lot of stumbling, right? Pursuing him day by day just in the ordinary. One of the great saints of Western history is this fellow. I think that's just, I'm sorry, there's not a picture of him. I don't know if we know what he looked like. Brother Lawrence lived in the 1600s. There's a small book called Practicing the Presence of God that was a compilation of his writings and letters after he died. People were amazed at his deep walk with God. He washed dishes in a monastery his whole life. And the monks got to where they saw him so powerfully walking with God and knowing God, the monks would come to him for advice. They would come to him to know how to walk with God. And he just told them, I just, every day I'm, I'm here with, I'm in my pots and pans just talking with God. That's all it is. It's just this daily thing. And he even, his intimacy with God got so deep in that ordinary place that he came to call God the Lord of the pots and pans. Isn't that cool? The Lord of the pots and pans. I think that's so great. That's where it's at in my opinion in my opinion. So let me wrap up. In regards to our spiritual growth, I really believe we would be wise to remember that those rainbow days, that the big spectacular things, they can come, but when they do, it's a gift. And I really want you to leave here today realizing they are rare. They're rare. They're infrequent. They're few and far between. They're uncommon. They're not typical. Does God have the right to intersect my life at any point in a big way? He does. And he will. I can't stop that. But I think it would be wise to remember that God's preferred way is not to work in the big and spectacular. That's not his preferred way. His preferred way is in the small, the ordinary, the everyday, and the mundane. 
And I think we'd be wise to remember that the vast majority of our growth in the image and likeness of Jesus will simply come in walking with him in the ordinariness of life, in the everyday, in the mundane, within the rhythms and routines of just my daily real life, that that's where the majority of my growth is going to come from. And for us to always keep in mind that faithfulness in little ways produces over time fruitfulness in big ways. That it's faithfulness in little ways that will bring fruitfulness in big ways. That perhaps the best place to come and know him and to become like him is something as simple as eating and drinking. Lunch, breakfast, supper. If you want to read more, I really recommend this book, The Liturgy of the Ordinary. Um, She talks about how you can walk with Jesus and make PB&J sandwiches for your kids. It's a very profound book. Um, So if you're a reader, I highly recommend it. Okay. I mean, what's this, just quickly, what's this look like? I mean, to me, it's just, you get up every morning and it's, it's prayer before my phone and you just, every day you're opening the word, the New Testament you're reading, I want to see your beauty in here and I'm, I'm taking that in, I'm wanting to apply it, having a time of prayer, yielding my life, Lord, my life today is about you, it's not about me and then you just enter your life and you just do the tasks that you do, trying to do them before God, you know, before you do something, Lord, I'm doing this now, I want, I want you to be famous through me doesn't have to be big. I'm just going to be faithful. Um, it's trying to pepper prayer throughout the day, trying to think of him throughout the day. And half the time you don't, right? Half the time you get to 5 o'clock, like, I haven't thought of him since 9 this morning, you know. Okay, it's just, it is what it is. But it's just trying to give my task to him. And it's seeking to be attentive in all things, though I don't always do it well. It's just that daily faithfulness before him, trying to bring blessed people that he brings in my path, regularly being part of this community, taking seriously this weekly gathering that may really, especially with me up here, probably very boring and very ordinary and very mundane, but just knowing that God through that regular thing works, okay? So, 12th, I want you to stand. Would you stand with me? Here's my challenge to me and to all of us. Twelve, let us be a people that are not addicted to and seeking the spectacular, the big, the dramatic thing that's just going to totally change my life with God because I'm telling you, that's not where God lives, okay? So may we be people who can just be faithful in the ordinary, the mundane, the regular, and things as small as just eating and drinking. May we be the kind of people that just learn to walk with him day in and day out and that over time, through the ordinary, we will see him make us more and more into his image. May we be that kind of people. May we be that kind of people. We're just faithful day in and day out. And if God wants to intersect my life, he can. But I'm just going to be there in the ordinary and the mundane because I think that's where he wants to meet me. So I pray, Father, for all of us. You know our tendency to be addicted to the spectacular and the big. I'm convinced that the majority of the work you have in my life, 90% is just in the ordinariness of my life and me just being faithful to you in it. So help us to become that kind of people that become like you. And I pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. And so 12th is probably the last thing you wanted to hear on a morning. 12th this week, you are sent to be ordinary. That's it. You're sent to just live your ordinary life with Jesus. So good seeing you guys this morning. God bless you. Grace to you.